2: Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host... Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Virginia L. Sumi, a historian and co-founder of The Source Historical Consulting. Her research focuses on North Carolina history, political and legal history, African American history, and women's history. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Life of Elrida Melton-Alexander, Activism Within the Courts, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2022. As the title suggests, this book explores the life and contributions of a groundbreaking attorney and judge, Elrida Melton-Alexander Rall and her life and career deserve recognition for several reasons, including an impressive list of firsts, but also owing to her accomplishments during the civil rights movement in the U.S. South. While Alexander did not actively participate in civil rights marches and demonstrations, she used her professional achievements and middle-class status to advocate for individuals who lacked a voice in the Southern legal system. Sumi argues that Alexander was integral to the civil rights movement in North Carolina, as she and women like her worked to change discriminatory laws while opening professional doors for other minority women. Dr. Sumi, welcome to New Books in the American South.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
2: Well, first and foremost, congratulations on the book. Um, I know that is no small feat, so I was really excited to see this out at the SHA most recently, which was really, really cool.
1: Yes, I was. Oh, that's so exciting when you get to a conference and you get to see your book in person there. It's like it's
2: real. It is. It exists in the flesh. Um, Well, before we delve in too far to the life of Elrita um, and and her larger legacy, uh, I was hoping you could give us an idea of your own background and how you came across this incredibly accomplished, but at least to my understanding, largely unknown figure um, from North Carolina history.
1: Right, I'm a native North Carolinian, born and raised. Um, My father was a United Methodist minister, so we lived all over Western North Carolina. And I went to high school and did my undergraduate work in Salisbury, North Carolina, which is about 45 minutes southwest of Greensboro. After I graduated from Catawba College, I did an AmeriCorps VISTA project in Montana, where I stayed for eight years and ended up getting my master's degree in history at the University of Montana. And so I was in a class with my mentor, Anya Jabbour, called Writing Women's Lives. And I thought, well, geez, it'd be really cool to write about somebody from North Carolina. And I'm digging around, and I'm not really coming up with anything. And I think I was on the North Carolina History Museum website, and I saw a timeline. I was actually just going to ask you, where were you
2: digging around from Montana um, (laughs) and North Carolina history?
1: Just sitting in my sitting on the couch in my little studio apartment in Missoula, and I saw 1968. Rita Melton Alexander becomes the first uh, Black female district court judge in the country, and I was like, wow, I've never heard of this person before. And it just, it really snowballed from there. And I was surprised how many people, particularly of my generation, I'm 40. So, you know, people who were born just immediately after her career ended had never heard of her before. Mm -hmm. My husband uh, was born and raised in Greensboro. And had never heard of her, but my father-in-law knew her, and so it was. It was really interesting to to dive into her life and also learn so much about the city of Greensboro mm-hmm. and the work prompted me to apply to get my PhD at UNC Greensboro. So then I was it, the paper that I was writing turned into my master's thesis. Which ended up bringing me <laughs> back home. I always say, El oh, Rita brought me back home mm-hmm. and um, moved to moved to Greensboro to to write the dissertation."
2: That's really cool. Um, I I had a mentor a long time ago once tell me we're all as historians just destined to write about where we're from. Like that's really what we're we're looking at, just trying to figure out where are we from, what does this all mean? And it seems like in many ways your path has kind of brought you brought you back to studying about where you're from.
1: Exactly, and it was I learned so much about where I was from. I was a political science major at Catawba College, minored in history, and took classes on. Southern political history. And while I had the most amazing political science advisor at Catawba, um, there were things that I learned in researching this book that yeah you know, I had never heard of. Yeah,
2: before. Man, that's really cool. Well, okay, maybe I'm off on this. So if I am, feel free to tell me, but I feel like biography is kind of downplayed a little bit in graduate school, right? Like it's 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 a tougher sell to come in and say, hey, I want to write a dissertation about this one person, right? I'm going to write a biography. I feel right. like that's kind of fallen out of favor, even though I think biography in many ways are like the most engaging kinds of historical work. Um, and it's what I think popular audiences are kind of drawn to historical figures and they want to learn more about them. Um, so I wonder... What was it about her story that made you think, "Hey, this this deserves to be kind of explored in, in a book length project, and not just a one off, you know, paper for a graduate class?"
1: Right. Well, I was definitely discouraged from um, <laughs> doing a dissertation so not as a biography. Uh, first of all, I was just got really lucky that when I the initial person I wanted to work with at UNCG was like, no. Um, and so fortunately, Chuck Bolton, who was the uh, head of the history department there, took me on as uh, an advisee, and he had just written a biography on William Winter, okay. who was a former governor of Mississippi. So he was more than happy to, well, I hope he was more than happy <laughs> to, uh, to to take me on and was really great about advising me on how to turn this dissertation into a, into a publishable biography. But when it came to just talking about Elrita herself or judge Alexander herself, it was just the amount of historiography that I had to cover within a biography was appealing to me Mm -hmm. because, like you said, there was that home aspect of it, but Even in going and being a civil rights historian, her story is so unique and her approaches to activism are so unique. And I really found it so fascinating that, you know, at the beginning when I was studying about her and she would walk up to these white judges and say, well, I'm just going to go see what the difference is between this white water and this colored water (laughs) and just go drink from the white water fountain. And I'm sitting there thinking, who does that?
0: Right, right.
1: (laughs) And so the more I got to know about her life professionally and then also everything that she had to overcome personally as well, which is, I mean, her personal life was Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty rough. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought, well, this could easily be an interesting biography if not, you know, probably won't be a bestseller, but it it would definitely be interesting and I think have a lot of local appeal. Which so far, uh, so far, it's been pretty well received in Greensboro.
2: Oh, I can only imagine. And I will say it is incredibly appealing, even to someone who's never been to Greensboro and only visited North Carolina once for like a short weekend. Uh, So I think you've done a fantastic job of demonstrating this isn't just about one person, which, you know, obviously all biographies are. But it also Mm -hmm. tells larger stories about the civil rights movement, the Jim Crow era and the post civil rights movement. In the south and, and and really engaging in personable ways so i think you've done a really fantastic job
1: thank you yeah i mean there's i, I say greensboro is kind of a secondary character in the book because <laughs> greensboro is known for being a civil rights city it's mm-hmm. known for the ant4 um but most people don't even know this the the stories about the bennett bells behind the ant4 and george simpkins and el reed alexander and all of these stories that make Greensboro civil rights history so, so nuanced.
2: Absolutely. Okay. So let's get into her life a little bit. Um, she, she eventually becomes a respected lawyer and judge in North Carolina. Um, and she is a, a black woman who, even though she would be reluctant to admit it was a pioneer in in many, many respects yet you, you make the case as with all good biographies that, that her childhood really laid the foundation for her future work and, and and activism, even if she wouldn't call it that. Uh, so what was her childhood like? Uh, and, and, and how do you think it, it related to what comes in, in her future uh, as a lawyer and, and reluctant pioneer as 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 you claim? Or I guess as she claimed, right?
1: As she claimed. Yeah. So her childhood was she grew up a part of what we would think of as the black middle class. Um, her father was a graduate of Shaw University which is the oldest HBCU in the South. And Shaw was really a school that really pumped out ministers and educators. And her father was a Baptist minister. And so they moved around, but so she didn't land in Greensboro until she was about 12 years old. But she comes from this educated, Du Boisian, talented 10th type setting and so her father said that you know nobody would be allowed to sleep under his roof without a college degree And so there was just basic expectations of her and her siblings. Like you will get a college degree. That is not a question um, that laid the found work, you know, for her, for her future career. Should also be noted that her sister also became an attorney as well um, in Zanesville, Ohio, and Mm -hmm. her oldest brother uh, became a respected educator in North Carolina. So all three of them were, very professionally successful people, mm-hmm. largely because of the emphasis on education that her father that her father placed on them early yeah.
2: in life. Yeah. And it seems like there's something to not only being a member of the black middle class, but also the the children of the town minister. Right. That like adds another element uh, to how she develops um, throughout her childhood and and how she kind of understands what her role may be is and will become later in life? Do you think there's, I mean, am I making this up or do you think there's some connection between um, the idea of being a minister's daughter that that adds something to it?
1: I will say that is where I related to her the most, <laughs> being a minister's daughter, yes. And so, well, in, in that situation, and I'm talking you know, obviously about Herbert also a little bit from personal experience. Sure. Uh, you, get, you grow up kind of in like a small fishbowl, and people are looking at you, and people are expecting you to behave in in very certain ways. Mm-hmm. And um, I I wasn't very good at it, but <laughs> if um, but it gave her a good, I guess, kind of template for her future public life, mm-hmm. as in especially. Um, When her relationship problems started to surface, you know, how was she going to handle this publicly and how was she going to put a public face on on her career and so I think having those expectations put on her early in life also helped.
2: Absolutely, okay. So, uh, Alexander, one of her many firsts, became the first African American woman admitted to Columbia Law School, uh, which is is in and of itself really, really important. And and um, I think that's why many people are probably going to be drawn to her initially. It's like look at all of these first steps that 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 she made, but. I just loved how you talked about her decision to attend Columbia Law School. Um, So I was hoping you could maybe explain where this this idea, idea to attend law school become a lawyer comes from uh, for El Rita who had gone to college you know it was the expectation of of her parents and and her siblings that they all go to college um, and then then she kind of steps back for a moment but then decides to go pursue this career so I was hoping you could maybe kind of explain that to us because it's a really fascinating story in and of itself
1: yeah after college she does what a lot of young black women of, of her class do and she goes and she becomes a teacher. Uh, But she also elopes with her college (laughs) or her college sweetheart, which quickly turns pretty sour. Actually, there were a lot of warning signs before she got married, but um, quickly devolves into a pretty verbally, emotionally and physically abusive relationship. And so. At the time, her husband was in medical school at Mm -hmm. Meharry Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee, which was the only medical school. Uh, at least in the South, that would accept um, Black med students. And so when he comes back to Greensboro and he's a surgeon and I uh, can't remember exactly how she phrases it, but he wasn't a sniffling little boy anymore and had, <laughs> and had money and other women who were interested in him, she which kind said, of wasn't
2: his his persona in college.
1: No, he was kind of like this yeah. shy nerdy guy in college, and then comes back and he's like, "Hey, I'm a surgeon. That's you know mm-hmm. making more money than anybody else in the neighborhood." And so, uh, she had been volunteering. Um, she had worked in the North Carolina A and T library and somebody told her that she'd make a good attorney and I think she kind of laughed it off initially and then her husband's like go I'll be glad (laughs) just you know stay at my mom's house Uh, his mother uh, lived um, where does she live I think I want to say she lived in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. um, but not too terribly far from Columbia Um, and so she went up there and moved with her mother-in-law and said well her quote was that bastard I'm going to make him pay and (laughs) applied to the most expensive law schools in New York and happened to get accepted at Columbia. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this, you know, pathbreaking career started as as kind of vengeance.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I also just think it it kind of speaks to what, what comes later on in her life where she is the first in many regards, but it's not necessarily like that, at least, based on my reading was like her main motivating factor. She didn't apply to Columbia law school to become the first African American woman to graduate from there. It was kind of out of spite, uh, which I think is, is, is really, really fascinating. Um, and it makes for a really great story. I'm sure when you're talking to people in Greensboro about this, um, Mm -hmm. but despite the fact that she chose to pursue uh, a law degree at Columbia, um, maybe out of spite when she's there, she takes it very seriously. Um, but she's also exposed to race and racism uh, in new ways. In many ways, this was one of her first experiences outside of the Jim Crow South. So what were her experiences like um, as, as a black woman, a kind of pioneering black woman in New York City?
1: Yeah, so she grew up um, in Greensboro. She grew up in East Greensboro, which even today, Greensboro is a residentially very segregated city and so she grew up in an environment where she didn't have to encounter really all that many white people and of course greensboro east greensboro has two hbcus Mm -hmm. so she didn't even have to encounter you know white people are leaving greensboro to get a good education and so her it's important to note that she was uh, biracial both of her parents were biracial Uh, she had two white grandfathers Uh, which was common. Her parents were both from the Great Dismal Swamp area of North Carolina, where you have a lot of bi and tri-racial people. And so it was her first experience where she had ever really thought about the concept of passing, because she realized that she could walk down the street on Broadway, Mm -hmm. and people would assume she had some ethnicity other than Caucasian, but they didn't necessarily um, say, oh, there's a black woman walking down the street
0: mm-hmm.
1: where if she was with her, particularly her um, friend Herman Taylor, who was a darker skinned uh, black law student, he would not, he could not have the same privileges as she did.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so it was a conscious decision on her point at that particular point in her life to embrace her blackness and say, look, I am a black woman. I'm a product of the Jim Crow South. And you are going to accept me as I am or, or, or you're not. Mm-hmm. And some, I think it was really a good, it was her first lesson in, I mean, of course she knew about, you know, the nuances of race, but again, even in East Greensboro, she was fairly sheltered mm-hmm. from, from a lot of that as well. Her her uh, father would not let her patronize segregated businesses, and so she didn't have a whole lot of experience with that before getting to Columbia. Yeah, before getting outside of the South.
2: Yeah, and I I found it interesting that that you know she could pass as as they would call it. Um, but kind of makes a conscious decision not to um, in many respects. And I think that that kind of speaks volumes to who she was as an individual. Um, and, you know, this is a time when when, you know, even being black in the north, as she finds out, is is not necessarily accepted uh, on, on completely equal terms. And so I think that that really speaks to her own kind of fortitude uh, to, to kind of embrace that aspect of who she is um, in a way that that could really lead to significant forms of discrimination, even in a place like New York City. Um, but yeah. she eventually graduates law school. She she spends a little bit of time in New York after that. But in 1947, she came back to North Carolina and yet again becomes uh, a pioneer as the first African-American woman to practice law in the state. Uh, so this is 1947. We are coming out of World War Two, but this is still the Jim Crow South. Um, the civil rights movement of the like, 1950s and 1960s hasn't quite begun just yet. Uh, so here she is, uh, the first black woman to become a lawyer in the state. What are her experiences like um, when she comes back to North Carolina in 1947?
1: Well, there were laws set up to prevent black people from being able to pass the bar, um, particularly in southern states. I believe it was Georgia that was called like the graveyard of black lawyers or something like that, because it was just impossible for a black person to be able to sit for the bar.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And North Carolina made it extremely hard. Uh, she had to have affidavits saying that she was exceptionally Um, meritorious uh, just to be able to sit for the bar and so it took um, it it took a lot of personal issues that had happened she had a personal setback she was um, injured in a in a house fire Um, and then having to use connections within her community uh, to be able to get to the right people to who let her sit for the bar. So a former church member of her father's worked for a local head of the democratic party who was having the governor of North Carolina over for dinner. Mm -hmm. And ultimately getting that word in uh, with the governor of North Carolina was white was helped her uh, be able to sit for the North Carolina bar. Uh, But she also had affidavits from, you know, the Dean of Columbia's law school as well. So she had to get, you know, the, the most powerful, you know, really white people involved, uh, in order just to be able to, to sit for the bar.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you suggest that during this period, so she, she passes the bar exam and becomes <laughs> an attorney. Um, and you suggest that throughout her, her legal career as an attorney, she developed what you call her judicial philosophy and unique style of performance activism. Um, and this is really where I think, I don't want to put words into your mouth, you argue that she like made her mark and um, right. this kind of performative style of activism um, and th- through her philosophy. So, would you just explain what those two things were? What was her legal philosophy uh, as an attorney and, and explain what performative activism looked like um, for El Rita?
1: Well, her. Legal philosophy was one that, you know, she was going to, and this, this also talks about her activism as well, but she was one who worked within the confines of the law mm-hmm. um, to be able to make the law applicable to all people. And sometimes she would do that through these very theatrical performances in the courtroom. Uh, so for instance, I, I mentioned the water fountain mm-hmm. Um anecdote, but there was an incident in a courtroom in Uh, I believe is in Eastern North Carolina, where she tried to try her case from the segregated section of the courtroom. And the judge has to be like, no, lawyer Alexander, you need to come down and stand in front of the bench. And she said, I am following the letter of the law. This is where my people are required to sit. This is where I'm going to be. And so so she really used performance to highlight the hypocrisy Mm -hmm. of segregation and how ridiculous it was and um and, of course, it was those type of anecdotes that really drew me into her as well as like, this woman's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the use of of theater um, as a form of activism, I thought was really interesting and unique. Um, of course, you know, theater has been always in some way used as a method of activism, but she, the way she took it and applied it to courtrooms, mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting and creative, and if I can say ballsy, yeah. that that she was that she did that.
2: Yeah, and you know, as I was thinking, as we're talking, she she becomes the first black female attorney in North Carolina, and as an attorney, she doesn't just do civil rights work. Right. Like that's not her approach. And you can talk more about that in just a moment if you'd like. But um, in many ways, it is her her Mm -hmm. performance as a lawyer in that courtroom that is also part and parcel of civil rights activism. She is breaking down barriers, calling out hypocrisy where she sees it and making real, real change uh, within the confines of these these kind of Jim Crow structures that are placed around her. So there's a couple of, of important cases that come come up that, that are perhaps more civil rights focused. Um, so I was hoping you could maybe talk to us about the kinds of cases that she took up um, because they really were were wide ranging um, and then hopefully delve into perhaps one of the more, more consequential cases that she takes up, which is um, a 1964 case involving an interracial rape accusation. Um, so could you just give us an idea of like the breadth of cases that, that, that she took under her belt? And then maybe we can focus a little bit more on, on that more clearly civil rights associated case from 1964.
1: Right. Um, well, because she was a black attorney and she was in East Greensboro, most of her clients came from that community. Mm -hmm. Um, but she took on child support cases where, um, she found out that black women received less child support than white women. And she said, wait a minute, diapers aren't cheaper for black women. (laughs) This is ridiculous. Um, But also she took up, you know, a lot of landlord tenant disputes, basic things that go to, you know, the heart of, you know, how, of survival, Um, But also where there were institutional barriers that made that survival harder for African Americans. And so she said, one of her quotes was, you know, to me, every case I took up was a civil rights case because Mm -hmm. it was directly dealing with the survival of of people in her community. Yeah, And so, uh, yeah, so when she got to the, the 64 Yo's case, she was a little reluctant.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. So can you just kind of set this scenario up um, for this this pretty consequential and controversial uh, case from
1: 1964? Yes. So there was, um, outside of Greensboro, there's a small town called Jamestown and there was an old... I guess, run down mansion in the woods where teenagers would go and have sex in the back of their cars and get drunk and do all the things they do what teenagers do. do, you know? Yes. <laughs> and so um, ultimately, long story short, um, four young black men had been there and a white couple and the four black men were accused of raping the white woman and beating her, her partner, the person that she was with. And so in 1964, so this happened in the summer of 1964. The trial was starting in fall of 1964. Um, in between the, the rape and the trial, Johnson signs the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, which infuriates people across the South and, you know, sets into or continues, really pushes that, you know, what political historians call that great white political switch. Mm hmm. And so, you know, people in Greensboro and are, are in, in North Carolina are pretty angry. And so it ended up being a death penalty case. So these four men were um, subject to the death penalty. The judge said that they would be tried as a unit instead of individually. And the local Guilford County sheriff, uh, Greensboro is in Guilford County, um, put um, I guess you could say obstacles in the way there were, um, orders to shoot any of the defendants that, that moved during the trial and shoot and shoot that attorney as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, uh, he bugged their jail cells, uh, trying to, you know, catch them on, on tape confessing. And there was also credible witness or uh, jury tampering as Mm -hmm. well. And so it was, um, you know quite the uphill battle, but of course, she was also facing uh, her own death threats for for taking on this case. Uh, but she finds that um, the she uncovers the race-based jurist, jury selection procedures uh, in Guilford County, which are were very convoluted. Mm-hmm. and so but ultimately, It ends up being the longest jury selection process in Guilford County up to that point. And she is successful in getting one black male juror um, and which ultimately ends up saving their lives. Uh, They are found guilty, but it's the one black juror who recommends mercy.
2: Yeah, and this is one of the ways that I think you demonstrate that she she had real impact through her activism on civil rights in North Carolina and breaking down some of those barriers, um, even if it's on a local level, to, to kind of including African-Americans in jury selection and not allowing them to be eliminated through these discriminatory ways. That ha- certainly has impacts on black defendants. Uh, I was hoping you could maybe delve in a little bit deeper. Uh, there was a case she took where she, if I get it right, she's she's defending members of the Ku Klux Klan.
1: <laughs> that was the so hardest like, part to write. Yeah, because... so how is this,
2: this woman who who is so clearly aware of, of racism as it exists uh, in Jim Crow, North Carolina, she's taking on these cases where she's breaking down barriers to, to Black inclusion uh, and juries, yet here she is in another breath defending members of the Ku Klux Klan.
1: So the Ku Klux Klan was um, pretty powerful in in, in Guilford County and in central North Carolina. Uh, Like I said at the beginning, I went to high school and college in Salisbury, North Carolina, which during this time period was where the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan lived. And Mm -hmm. so it was um, a huge presence in central North Carolina. And they would look for... Black attorneys to hire them for non-Clan-related cases. So for a drunk driving case or a domestic violence case. And they would look for a Black attorney to say, hey, look, we can't. Don't hold (laughs) hold our Clan memberships against us. Look who we hired. Mm -hmm. And so I had a hard time. I thought it was important to include, but I had a hard time reconciling that in Mm -hmm. writing it. Um, and I write in the introduction that you know often her actions are you know contradictory, as are all human beings. Um, but she always said that she used it as an opportunity to educate mm-hmm. and to hopefully pull some of these men out of the the Ku Klux Klan fold. Yeah, and which and she said she was successful. I. Um, was unable to find a lot of cooperating evidence on that.
2: Because <laughs> you mean I didn't you didn't go, go poll former clan members?
1: <laughs> I didn't go and, and wasn't able to find, you know, membership lists of the clan <laughs> who hired um, Elbrida Alexander. But, um, you know, given who she was and her kind of force of personality, it, it wouldn't have shocked me at all if she was able to, to mm-hmm. convince people to to back away from the clan. There are so many instances where I'm going through her oral histories. I'm like, no, that can't be, (laughs) no, (laughs) she didn't do that. And sure Mm -hmm. enough, um, of course, you know, that's the way it happened. And so, uh, so I guess, you know, even though it was kind of hard for me in the 21st century to reconcile how somebody could do that, and still claimed to be a civil rights attorney mm-hmm. or a civil rights activist that you know she used it in her own way.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it also is indicative of that larger idea of working within the confines that right. are that you have to operate within uh, and make change how you can. I was actually reminded, I'm going I'm to blank on his name now, but there's a, a guy who uh, goes around, he's a black guy, and he has conversations with mm-hmm. Klan members and like befriends them and tries to get them to to back out of the Ku Klux Klan and has been incredibly successful in some respects um, and just kind of meeting people one-on-one and letting them recognize the humanity of, of people that they may not interact with on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. And I, I think I have in, in the notes of the book, there, there is some historiography around that mm-hmm. and people who did do that, um, whether they were white or black civil rights activists, but reaching out to people. Um, who were literally in terrorist organizations yeah, yeah. to you know recognize the humanity in other people yeah
2: braver than I. Uh, so as with many biographies, um, your examination into her personal life, uh, I think was, was one of the really fascinating aspects of this. It's one thing to just kind of go through and check the boxes of, okay, the first person to do this, the first person to do that. But, um, and you've alluded to this a little bit already. She, she had a pretty turbulent, uh, personal life, namely through, um, her relationship with, with her husband. Um, so I've was hoping you could just maybe give us a little bit of insight into what her her marriage was like, uh, and and how it shaped her uh, throughout her her entire professional life.
1: Yeah, it was a rough marriage from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And again, she had a, a friend in college who said before they got married, just when they were dating, who's like, "I don't like him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he was he he was a volatile human being." Uh, she said he was brilliant, um, and I you know believe that he was a you know, a surgeon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the connection between the two of them was, was in their intelligence um, that they were both brilliant human beings. Uh, But he, he struggled with alcohol. Um, There's evidence he struggled with mental illness. And so it ended up being a very, very violent relationship in which on several occasions um, he, he, injured her, Mm -hmm. uh, significantly, um, in, in beating her. Um, and to top it off, they had, they had one son who suffered from, as they they discovered when he was a teenager, suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. And I, I have two kids there, you know, but, you know, anytime there's a problem with your child, you know, that's, that's stressful on a marriage in and of itself. And so all of these you know all of these issues combined made it a really uh, difficult situation. And as early as 1950, I, I signed a letter that she wrote to him um, saying, you know, I would leave you tomorrow, <laughs> except mm-hmm. here are the reasons why I have not left you. And it was things like pride in my race mm-hmm. and community and all of these things that as a black woman she had to take into consideration more than a white woman would. Yeah. In that, you know, she realized that they were not just, you know, representing themselves or their families in their career. They were representatives of of their race in, in Greensboro and in North Carolina.
2: Yeah. It's kind and, of that burden yeah. of being part of that talented tenth, as Du Bois yeah. said.
1: Exactly. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And there were at the time in North Carolina, uh, you couldn't obtain a no-fault divorce. And so um, it is uh, important to point out as soon as no-fault divorces were allowed in North Carolina in 1968, she got a divorce. But she waited until it was possible to be able to do that without a long protracted legal battle
2: mhm mhm and you kind of brought this up too but she had one son um, mm-hmm. who who struggled with issues on of of his own and in addition to his 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 father uh, but they had an interesting relationship um, nonetheless, um, she she I mean, per my reading, seemed to be a very caring, loving mother who who really tried to do everything she could to make sure that her son had the best possible life that that he could. So, could you just elaborate a little bit on what what their relationship was like um, yeah. within the confines of that of that troubled marriage as well?
1: It was a close relationship between mm-hmm. her and Gerardo, and uh, because of the personal wealth that they had amassed, you know, as an attorney, um, particularly her as an attorney, she was able to send him to camps. She was able Mm -hmm. to send him to boarding schools. Um, She was able to get the best possible care that literally money could buy uh, for him. Um, And unfortunately, you know, that, that the part of the story has a very sad ending, Uh, but uh, she you know, some would say even one of her former law partners said, well, you know, she probably spoiled him too much, <laughs> but you know, she was uh, a large part um, raising him mm-hmm. on her own. Yeah. Um, within the confines of again, a troubled marriage, the civil rights movement, all of these external forces that are going on. And, and yeah, I think, yeah, she was a very loving mother who, did her best in really extraordinary circumstances.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So in addition to, to being a lawyer and, and dealing with her, her personal life, she, she eventually was elected to the district court. um, And she was the first African-American woman to be elected uh, as a district court judge in the United States, I believe. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, again, one of these like pioneering moments Uh, And I think in a lot of ways, it's it's her role as a judge that also kind of cements her legacy as as one of these these civil rights activists, Um, not only because she was the first in something, but also what she did from the bench. So what was her career as a judge like and and how did she embrace this new role?
1: Um, This is where, you know, that title of that chapter is called, you know, reluctant pioneer question Mm -hmm. mark, because, you know, the when she was elected, the headline in the greensboro daily news was a reluctant pioneer and i could Mm -hmm. kind of help bs on that that she was absolutely not a reluctant pioneer Uh she knew exactly what she was doing she was a very politically astute person um but as she saw you know in, in the in the yo's case the interracial rape case uh as she saw throughout her career as an attorney she saw you know, disparate sentencing, particularly Mm -hmm. for Black men. And so she starts something called the Judgment Day Program, which was not limited to young Black men, but it was a, a forerunner of juvenile deferred sentencing, where if you commit an offense, let's say it was a drunk driving offense, you had to you go in and she would delay sentencing until you committed or, you know, community service Mm -hmm. and wrote an essay and had people vouch for you. And so um, there are several people in Greensboro who say, I would not be where I am if Alexander hadn't taken, you know, a second chance on me. And so of course it was a controversial program, Mm -hmm. um, There are lots of issues about, you know, judicial discretion. And of course, you know, this is also a program that is targeting sentencing, particularly for young black men. Right. And so it it proved to be quite controversial and it was ultimately shut down.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, But it did, from what I've heard anecdotally, it did a lot of good while it was around.
2: Yeah. And it seemed, again, she was kind of operating from within those confines, but mm-hmm. coming up with really creative and and in some ways, beneficial ways to maybe help people change their lives and not just become part of this. Like, OK, you've committed the crime, you're going to be locked up because this is in that moment, too, where we're beginning to see, you know, the the beginning of the rise of, of mass incarceration in the United right. States. And so she kind of offers uh, a different perspective on that.
1: And at the time it was you know, it was considered a really creative and unique yeah. judicial approach. Now, juvenile deferred sentencing is, is pretty common. Right. Um, but she just, that's just, you know, one of those other things where she was just a, a bit ahead of her time.
2: Absolutely. So, so, She eventually ran for the position of chief justice, uh, of the North Carolina Supreme court. Um, and there's a couple of really interesting things about this, this decision. Um, one, she does it in 1974 and she decides to run as a Republican, which if you know anything about the history of like African-American voting patterns um, from the 1930s up through like 1960s, right, there's this massive switch away from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. So she kind of bucks the trend in many ways in that regard. Um, but. Uh, the race itself, for the, the primary race at least, uh, is also one that, that would be funnier if it wasn't so sad in, in what it reveals about you know, race and gender in North Carolina and the South and the United States more broadly in, in, in the 1970s. So would you just explain her decision to, to run as a Republican and then what the race revealed about, about prejudices that existed um, during that era?
1: Yeah. So she had always ran as a a Republican. In 1968, she ran as a Republican. She was just running in Guilford County, though, where people knew her. So uh, she stays with the Republican Party and the historiography around black Republicans, particularly at that time. You know, there's a lot of trends Mm -hmm. and a lot of the African-Americans who stayed in the Republican Party were professionally successful um, had some, had some wealth kind of came from that, you know, Du Boisian tradition that she came from Mm -hmm. and very much had a kind of bootstraps type mentality. And so I think there were, you know, definitely appeals of the Republican party at that time to her, of course, between 1968 and 1974, there's a lot of transition, Mm -hmm. um, in the party, um, of course, Strom Thurmond becomes a Republican in 1964 in North Carolina. Jesse Helms becomes a Republican in 1970, and so you now have a North Carolina Republican Party whose, you know, de facto leader Jesse Helms is one of the most outspoken racists
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in, in the country. And so the North Carolina Republican Party was not, I wouldn't say, I'd say they beyond hesitant, just pretty flat out, unwilling to provide her with any support. Mm-hmm. And so she is the first person to file, the first Republican to file in the in the primary. Shortly after, a fire extinguisher salesman with no college degree Mm -hmm. uh, files and ultimately beats her in the primary. And the North Carolina Republican Party then had a huge conundrum on their hands because it's... You know are we going to the, support?
2: like the, the supreme court right like the right. chief justice of the supreme court could have been uh, a fire extinguisher not that there's anything wrong with fire extinguisher salesman but uh, <laughs> this is a really important legal role
1: but yes but with absolutely no educational or, or legal training mm-hmm. beyond the high school level right and so um the North Carolina public, Republican Party does not outright uh, reject James Newcomb, who ended up being the, the candidate. Um, they don't really support him either. And, and mercifully, he did not win.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, Susie Sharp, who was the Democratic candidate, won. And she ends up being the first woman in the country to be an elected chief justice of the state Supreme mm-hmm. Court. So she's a, her, a, a pathbreaker in her own right. Um, uh, but she does, it, it, scared her a little bit because of, you know, outside of the race dynamics and the, the gender dynamics mm-hmm. of that, you know, are they going to vote for James over Susie? Right. And so, uh, she pushes for a amendment to the North Carolina constitution that says you at least have to have a law degree right. if you were going to serve as a judge in the state Probably of a good Carolina. idea. Yes.
2: Probably a good idea. So what does this reveal to... Rita, who, you know, who had demonstrated that that she could operate within the confines of the Jim Crow system and do so very effectively and push the boundaries of what black people and and black women in particular were able to do. What is this this loss in the primary to a fire extinguisher salesman uh, do to her? psyche uh her 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 views on on herself on on the system on north carolina what what happens
1: it hurt it hurt Mm -hmm. her um badly uh this was the first time that she in her professional life that she just really kind of that there was an obstacle that she couldn't eventually overcome Mm -hmm. and in year, like 10 years of researching her and going through her oral histories, I learned that the things that she didn't talk about that much are the things that really, really wounded her deeply. Mm -hmm. And that race, that 1974 race was something she did not talk about. It's not something that's included in um, her oral histories. She Mm -hmm. just didn't talk about it. And so um which is the the first clue that i had that yeah she was really hurt by this mm-hmm. and i think that she had built her career particularly in greensboro on she knew how to say what she needed to say to placate nervous white people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was the the first time when she was like (laughs) she knew it was i mean of course she knew it was racism because she had tried cases all over the state and so yeah it was it, it was a gut punch
2: yeah yeah absolutely well um Despite the gut punch, she 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 lives an extraordinary life. Um, She eventually gets remarried um, and, you know, retires from from the bench. Um, And so I just thought maybe we could we could leave it with this question. You know, she obviously lived a really incredible life uh, in many ways. She contributes to the larger civil rights movement in a number of ways, is super significant to North Carolina history and Greensboro history. Um, and whatnot, but above and beyond, a, just kind of reminding people that someone as important as El Rita existed. Um, what do you hope people take away from this biography that you've written uh, about 20th century U.S. history more broadly? Um, because I think in many ways this this is a book about her, obviously, but but you are delving into so much more um, that that I think is is significant. So what what do you hope people kind of take away uh, after reading this? It's
1: a big question. <laughs> um, well, of course, you know, I want them to know that this extraordinary woman existed.
0: Sure. Um,
1: but also, you know, you, you reference at the beginning that a lot of historians end up, you know, writing about home mm-hmm. and that while O'Reilly was certainly unique and had significant firsts you know, nationally and and in the state of North Carolina, that there are women like her who did extraordinary amazing things that have flown under the radar all over the place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, particularly extraordinary amazing black women.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I think one of the things that I would like people to take away is that, you know, I'm a, like I said, I'm a born and bred North Carolinian and I didn't know about this woman until I was 28 years old. And so to, to look around and there are really extraordinary people in all, all all over the place Mm -hmm. and particularly black women who have been kind of pushed under the radar.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that, that struck me most about, this book and, and and her life is you know if you looked at her today like if she was alive and 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 working today and say she defended people in the ku klux klan like she would be vilified right like to no oh. end as a, yeah. you know a traitor or someone who's not really committed to the cause and what i really appreciated about how how you you portrayed her life is that you know sometimes working within a system as problematic as that system may be it can have really important impacts on on movement politics on on Mm -hmm. civil rights on on gender right right like there there is so much that can be accomplished from within and you know external pressure is certainly a positive thing too but i was just really struck by that because i can't imagine someone like her being as accepted maybe um, at a time like today where it seems like you, you you have to have these really stark divisions. So I think you did a great job of kind of presenting that nuance uh, of who she was, both professionally and personally, uh, and in a way that I think we could all maybe learn a little um, from from her own, own life. So thank you for doing that. Well,
1: thank you. I, we, we see that contrast. In most social movements, mm-hmm. you know, Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X, there's always, right. you know, disagreements on the best way. Um, how do you be an activist? Yeah. Um, and I, I think she proves that there's there's not one way mm-hmm. you know, to be an activist, but also legal changes are very important too, to getting things done as well.
2: Absolutely. Well, the book is The Life of Elrita Melton Alexander, Activism Within the Courts, and it's available now through the University of Georgia Press. Virginia Summey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: And thank you for listening to New Books in the American South.